You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our sermon this morning as we continue this short series about long-awaited messiahs from the Old Testament. Let's read together from 2 Chronicles 24. Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem forty years. His mother's name was Zibiah. She was from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada chose two wives for him, and he had sons and daughters. Sometime later, Joash decided to restore the temple of the Lord. He called together the priests and Levites and said to them, Go to the towns of Judah and collect the money due annually from all Israel to repair the temple of your God. Do it now. But the Levites did not act at once. Therefore the king summoned Jehoiada, the chief priest, and said to him, Why haven't you required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax imposed by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and by the assembly of Israel for the tent of the testimony? Now the sons of that wicked woman, Athaliah, had broken into the temple of God and had used even its sacred objects for the bales. At the king's command, a chest was made and placed outside at the gate of the temple of the Lord. A proclamation was then issued in Judah and Jerusalem that they should bring to the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of the Lord, required of Israel in the desert. All the officials and all the people brought their contributions gladly, dropping them into the chest until it was full. Whenever the chest was brought in by the Levites to the king's officials and they saw that there was a large amount of money, the royal secretary and the officer of the chief priest would come and empty the chest and carry it back to its place. They did that regularly and collected a great amount of money. The king and Jehoiada gave it to the men who carried out the work required for the temple of the Lord. They hired masons and carpenters to restore the Lord's temple and also workers in iron and bronze to repair the temple. The men in charge of the work were diligent, and the repairs progressed under them. They rebuilt the temple of God according to its original design and reinforced it. When they had finished, they brought the rest of the money to the king and Jehoiada, and with it were made articles from the Lord's temple, uh, articles for the Lord's temple, articles for the service and for the burnt offerings, and also dishes and other objects of gold and silver. As long as Jehoiada lived, burnt offerings were presented continually in the temple of the Lord. Now Jehoiada was old and full of years, and he died at the age of 130. He was buried with the kings in the city of David because of the good he had done in Israel for God and his temple. And we'll turn to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 2. We'll read in our text this morning about the bloody purge carried out by Athaliah against the household of the king as Satan certainly was behind that, trying to put an end to the purposes of the Lord. And in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18, we read about another bloody purge that Satan was again behind in trying to put an end to the Lord's purposes. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said throughout the, through the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. 
When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Our text this morning comes from 2 Kings chapter 11. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram and sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom to hide him from Athaliah, so he was not killed. He remained hidden with his nurse at the temple of the Lord for six years while Athaliah ruled the land. In the seventh year, Jehoiada sent for the commanders of the units of a hundred, the Karaites and the guards, and had them brought to him at the temple of the Lord. He made a covenant with them and put them under oath at the temple of the Lord. Then he showed them the king's son. He commanded them, saying, This is what you are to do. You who are in the three companies that are going on duty on the Sabbath, a third of you guarding the royal palace, a third at the Sir Gate, and a third at the gate behind the guard, who take turns guarding the temple, and you who are in the other two companies that normally go off Sabbath duty, are all to guard the temple for the king. Station yourselves around the king, each man with his weapon in his hand. Anyone who approaches your ranks must be put to death. Stay close to the king wherever he goes. The commanders of units of a hundred did just as Jehoiada the priest ordered. Each one took his men, those who were going on duty on the Sabbath and those who were going off duty, and came to Jehoiada the priest. Then he gave the commanders the spears and shields that had belonged to King David and that were in the temple of the Lord. The guards, each with his weapon in his hand, stationed themselves around the king, near the altar and the temple, from the south side to the north side of the temple. Jehoiada brought out the king's son and put the crown on him, and he presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. They anointed him, and the people clapped their hands and shouted, Long live the king! When Athaliah heard the noise made by the guards and the people, she went to the people at the temple of the Lord. She looked, and there was the king standing by the pillar as the custom was. The officers and the trumpeters were beside the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing the trumpets. Then Athaliah tore her robes and called out, Treason! Treason! Jehoiada the priest ordered the commanders of units of a hundred who were in charge of the troops, Bring her out between the ranks and put to the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest had said, She must not be put to death in the temple of the Lord. So they seized her as she reached the place where the horses enter the palace grounds, and there she was put to death. Jehoiada then made a covenant between the Lord and the king and and the people that they would be the Lord's people. He also made a covenant between the king and the people. All the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They smashed the altars and idols to pieces and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, in front of the altars. Then Jehoiada, the priest, posted guards at the temple of the Lord. He took with him the commanders of hundreds, the Karites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and together they brought the king down from the temple of the Lord and went into the palace, entering by way of the gate of the guards. The king then took his place on the royal throne, and all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet 
because Athaliah had been slain with the sword at the palace. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the angels, when they announced the coming of into the flesh of the eternal Son of God, to the shepherds watching their flocks, they sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. Glory to God, peace to men. And the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was in every way worthy of this angelic song. That was the result of the coming into the flesh of the Son of God. It it meant glory for God in the highest, and it meant peace on earth for men upon whom the favor of God rests. And going back further, that song was also a response to the promise of the Lord given so early and repeated so often throughout the history of God's people that God would, in the face of sinfulness, in the face of despair, in the face of darkness, in the face of death, God would send a Savior. God would send a Savior. He promised that to His people over and over and over again. He promised it to Adam and Eve immediately after the fall into sin. He promised it to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, from your seed will come a Savior. The nations will be blessed through you. He promised that it would come from the line of Judah, a lion from the line of Judah. And he he further promised that it would come from David's line. A king would come. Kings would sit on the throne of, of the house of Israel and the ultimate king would come from David's line. And so as the angels made that announcement and sang that song, they were singing in response to that promise of the Lord given time after time, repeated throughout the history of God's people. And that was the result. Glory to God in the highest and peace to men on whom His favor rests. As we come to our text this morning in 2 Kings 11, we realize that that song of the angels, indeed the promise that was given by the Lord, is in jeopardy of never being heard, of never being fulfilled. It was in serious question in that time. As Athaliah executes this bloody purge, on the house of the king, and really on the house and the line of David. And the line of David that was to continue throughout all generations comes down to one bare thread of a little baby who survives. And so as we come to this chapter this morning, this drama surrounding the house of David and Athaliah and Jehoiada and Joash, This is fundamentally an account of the Lord securing His promise of a Savior and making possible the glory to Himself that the angels sang and the peace that would come to the earth. This is fundamentally an account of how God saved Christmas. How God made it possible that Jesus Christ would come into the world. And that's what we'll consider this morning. How it is that God secured 
his promise of a Savior, how he saved Christmas. Well, first consider the attack that was made. But as we parachute into this portion of of the history of God's people and of, of this terrible attack that is made on the house of the king, we have to ask the question, what happened? How did we get ourselves here? Just like a child might say who has been quietly dozing in the car, only to wake up and find themselves in the midst of this terrible traffic accident and chaos and cars all over the place, would wander around and look around and say, how did we get ourselves into this? And so if the question is, how did it come to be that there is a, a tyrannical, manical, murdering usurper of the woman on the, of, of a woman on the throne in Judah, then we must answer that it all began years earlier. It all began generations earlier during the reign of King Jehoshaphat in Judah. Jehoshaphat was the great-grandfather of Joash. And Jehoshaphat was a good king. He was a good king. In fact, there had been many good kings. The house of Israel had by and large been ruled by evil and wicked kings. But the house of Judah had been ruled by good kings. Some bad kings in between, but generally good kings. And Jehoshaphat was one of them. But he was a king who later in life had compromised. And that compromise probably at the time seemed like just a small one. We read in 2 Chronicles 20.35 that later Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, made an alliance with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who was guilty of wickedness. He agreed with him to construct a fleet of trading ships. Small enough compromise a good business deal, made economic sense, combine your resources, build a fleet of ships that will be able to sail south and pick up gold from Ophir. Seemed innocent enough, but it wasn't. And the Lord punished Jehoshaphat and his axis of evil by destroying the ships that they made so that they would never set sail. They were shipwrecked. But the real shipwreck didn't come until the next generation, until Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, became king. Now, the details aren't clear, but it seems that Jehoshaphat, in part of making this deal with Ahaziah, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat had his son, Jehoram, marry Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and the sister of Ahaziah, king of Israel. 2 Kings 8, verse 18 reads uh, concerning Ahaziah, the son of Jehoshaphat, the good king, about a, uh, sorry, about Jehoram, it reads, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. The sins of the fathers are carried on, we read in the second commandment, to the third and fourth generation. And the sins of Jehoshaphat in making that compromise and that treaty with Israel led to Jehoram's unfaithfulness. Jehoram's son of Ahaziah, uh, Jehoram's son Ahaziah, not to be confused with the Ahaziah king of Israel, but this Ahaziah king in, in Judah succeeds his father as king and the wickedness continues. He does evil in the eyes of the Lord and he does good in the eyes of his mother, Athaliah. Of course, you recognize that that principle from the second commandment is not a hard and fast rule. 
God's own law stipulated that a son could not be killed for a father's crime. The guilt is not passed on through the generations in that way. Also, in Ezekiel 18, the people were warned against the saying, a father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. The people were warned against saying, oh yeah, the father sins and therefore it must happen that his children also sin. No, every generation is like a new morning. A chance for God's faithfulness and grace to shine through. However, the principle of the second commandment, the sins of the fathers being passed on to the third and fourth generation, occurs when that next generation does not turn from the ways of their fathers. Every generation whose fathers are sinful must turn away and repent, must set a new direction, must not follow in the way of their sinful fathers. They are to set a new course. But in this case, they didn't do that. Rather, they continued in that path of destruction And brothers and sisters, as we come to our text in 2 Kings 11, we see the results of that path. Ahaziah, the king in Judah, goes up to Jezreel to visit his northern kingdom counterpart, Joram. And there he meets with God's hammer, Jehu, the man who had been appointed by God to carry out God's vengeance against the house of Ahab. And Ahaziah died there. Jehu put him to death. And back in Jerusalem, Athaliah hears of the, the death of her son, and, and what is her response? She puts to death his entire family. What a mother. What a piece of work this Athaliah is. But the seductions of false gods and of power Total power have overwhelmed her, and she executes a bloody purge, the destruction of her own family, her own flesh and blood, leaving only herself as ruler. Now think about the words that we sang in Psalm 89, this promise to David, your offspring I will favor, I will establish your descendants' reign Forever, your kingdom will endure, for I laid its foundations, and I will build your throne throughout all generations. And then consider the first verse of our text. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. Think about what that means for the history of God's people. From the very beginning, God had promised a Savior, and He had confirmed that that Savior would come through David's house. And then we read that Athaliah destroyed the whole royal family. Now, of course, our text doesn't stop at verse 1. But can you imagine if it did? God's promise failed. God's faithfulness discredited, God's truthfulness overturned, as there seems to be no one left in the royal family, in the house of David. There would be no, today, in the town of David, a Savior is born to you. There would be no glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. There would be no redeemer from sin's misery, no victor over Satan and death. 
It's unthinkable, but as you read that verse, the Davidic line appears to be cut. 2 Kings 11 verse 1 would be the second last verse in the Bible. The one after that would be all of God's promises have come to nothing. Athaliah, that vessel of Satan, purges the house of David in her bloody quest for power and comes close to bringing the whole history of redemption and all of God's promises to a grinding halt. She comes very close. Satan comes very close. It's a foretaste of another time when Satan executed a bloody purge, when he incited Herod to kill all the babies under two years old in Bethlehem. But there too, the Lord swept the baby away to Egypt, beyond the reach of Herod's undertakers and away from Satan's devious plots. Not so fast, Herod. Not so fast, Athaliah. Not so fast, Satan. God's purposes are not that easily quenched. You can do all you can to try and put an end to God's promises, but it doesn't work like that. God's purposes are never quenched. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. God has willed. And our text continues. In this case, God has willed that there would be just one faithful servant in the royal palace at that time. And that she would have the foresight to whisk the baby Joash away to the temple. Have you ever heard of this servant of the Lord? One of Israel's finest. The one who secured the promise of God to continue. The one who made possible the song of the angels to the shepherds. One of the greatest figures in the history of redemption. Have you ever heard of this woman named Jehoshaphat? That one last dangling string on the line of David is so close to being cut off, but the Lord in His province arranges to have the daughter of Jehoram, the sister of the now-dead Ahaziah, a woman who has rejected the godlessness of her family, to take the young son Joash from the slaughter and to hide him in the temple of the Lord. Jehoshaphat, you have probably never heard of her. She's not listed in any annals, no halls of fame, no notoriety is given to her, none of our, our Christmas hymns sing her praise. Yet it was through her hands, literally, and she carried young Joash into the safety of the temple that the Lord made possible the deliverance of his people. In the short term, over the people of, of Judah, and in the long term, over all, on whom his favor rests. God delights in using the humble and the meek to accomplish his plan. We've never heard of her, but God used her in a powerful way. He delights in lifting up the humble, but he is also zealous 
in bringing down the proud. We come to the acclamation. The acclamation of the king. An acclamation is simply when, when crowds of people shout, Long live the king! As the people of Judah did when they saw their king before him. For seven years, Joash had hidden right under Athaliah's nose. I don't know if you have in the back of your Bibles a picture of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. You see there that, that the Temple Mount takes up a prominent place in Jerusalem, and the, te- the palace is quite far away. But in the time of Joash, the palace and the temple were right beside each other. They both were on the place where Herod built his temple. The temple that Herod built and, and the grounds it was on was much larger than Solomon's temple. And so Joash grew up right beneath Athaliah's nose. He grew up, the future ruler, just steps from where his life nearly ended, but where he would one day reign over God's people. And there in the temple, the husband of Jehoshaba, Jehoiada, was in charge. Jehoiada was the high priest. He was faithful to the Lord and to his promises, and he bided his time under the evil reign of Athaliah, under the godless rule of that queen, until the time was right for the young boy to take over as king. The one thing, of course, that stood in the way of any acclamation or any coronation or any anointing of the king was that woman who would stop at nothing to secure her power. She had already tried to kill her entire family. Jehoiada recognizes that Joash needs to be kept safe from her, and so he waits, and at the right time he makes his plans. And you can follow that as we go through our text. He first calls together the guards, the Karaites, and the commanders of a hundred, and he secures their loyalty, and then he shows to them Joash, the king's son. And then he gives them this command, on the Sabbath day, The troops are to gather around Joash and offer him their protection. And so the commanders take their men on the Sabbath and they come to Jehoiada and he gives them the weapons that belong to David himself. Jehoiada then brings out Joash, the true son of David, and with the protection of David's own weapons, acclaims Joash as king. says in verse 12, Jehoiada brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. And he presented him with a copy of the covenant that is most likely a copy of the law. Deuteronomy 17 spoke about that. The king was to carry this copy of the law with him and to rule by it and proclaimed him king. And then to signify and seal his kingship to show that the, the Holy Spirit, that the Lord himself was with this king He's anointed by Jehoiada, the Lord's representative. And the people respond with shouts of praise, with shouts of acclamation. The people who have walked in darkness six years under this tyrannical woman of a queen, longer under her her husband Ahaziah, under Jehoram. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. They have suffered under the evil reign of Athaliah. And they recognize that now their Messiah, their anointed king, has come. And they join their voices together to acclaim him. Long live the king. When the true king is on the throne, 
God's people rejoice and they have peace and joy in Him. Living under a tyrannical, power-usurping king is misery. What a blessing when God's people recognize that and rejoice at the arrival of the true king. Satan is the one ruling behind Athaliah. And Satan is the one who even now is called the prince of this world. He is a tyrannical, power-usurping prince. And living under his usurping, murdering, illegitimate reign, it makes us long for the coming of our true king. Of course, Satan doesn't think that he's not the rightful ruler. And Athaliah gives expression to his own incredulity when she ironically cries treason. As the true king is proclaimed, she cries treason. She who who murdered his family, who is usurping this power, who has no right to the throne, cries treason. It is bitterly and utterly ironic. Satan today is like Athaliah at that last moment. Still alive. Still crying treason. Still wanting our hearts to follow him. But his doom is sure. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. And Jehoiada, faithful to his task, but careful to preserve the holiness of the temple, has Athaliah removed from the temple grounds and her blood is spilled on the entrance to the palace. The true king reigns. Notice that our text doesn't end there. The job is not complete merely with Joash on the throne. When a true king reigns, it affects change throughout the whole land. Change that will secure the salvation that God has brought. See, Athaliah had been leader in Jerusalem for six years. And she had propagated Baal and idol worship, the same idol worship that her son and husband had also been committed to. Sure, Judah had been ruled by a false monarch, but their hearts had turned from their true king long ago. Removing Athaliah was just the beginning. Returning the hearts of the people to their true king, to Yahweh. That was the goal. And that's what Jehoiada recognized. And that's why the job was not done. And so the first thing that Jehoiada does is he renews the commitment of the people to God. He restores their relationship with Him when he makes a covenant. He restores the covenant between God and His people. Now, earlier in verse 4, Jehoiada had made a covenant with the commanders. And later, he'll make a covenant between the people and the king. That's a different kind of covenant. The covenant that he makes between the people and the Lord is the covenant that God had made with his people already with Moses. So it's not a new covenant. Jehoiada renews the commitment of the people to the covenant made At Sinai, when God had said to his people, in effect, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, you can imagine for these people living under these these rulers who serve false gods so long, that might not have been clear to them that God would be their God. 
Now, God, in terms of his promises, had never backed away. His part had never changed. But it was necessary that his special love for his people was reconfirmed to them. They had been away from him so long, perhaps he had entirely rejected them. Perhaps this line of immoral rulers was a sign that God had left his people alone. But he had not. God is long-suffering. He's patient. He's committed. He's committed to himself and his promises. And he's committed to his people. He is their God. He is the God of salvation. And our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, has also renewed our commitment to God's covenant. And he has shown to us God's commitment to us when he came to this world in our own flesh, when he gave up his life on the cross, when he arose from the dead, and when he ascended into heaven. He came as the ultimate expression of, I will be your God. When he gave up his life that we might truly become God's redeemed people. God reconfirms his commitment to his people. I will be your God when Jehoiada reconfirms the covenant. But there is another part of that as well. Yes, God will be our God, but we must be his people. This commitment, this recommitment to God, works itself out in the purging of sin from our lives. Things don't stop with a recommitment simply to believing and living out the covenant relationship with God. Real commitment to God requires real action. And in this case, it required purging the idols from the land, smashing the temple of Baal, and putting to to death Matan, the priest of Baal. We understand that, don't we? That recommitment requires real action. Just think of Joe, a husband for who for too long has neglected his wife Barbara. It is, of course, necessary for Joe to come to her and say, Barbara, I love you and I want to restore our relationship. But those words aren't going to mean much if Joe doesn't do anything and he doesn't do the hard work of removing his extracurricular activities, his hobbies, his overloaded work schedule, and the other things that have created the rift between him and his wife. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ empowers us by his Holy Spirit to do. And that's what's going on in our text. As he takes over the place of ruler in our lives, he sends his Holy Spirit to purge the sin from our lives, to destroy the idols that have been taking over our hearts. Salvation begins with a God-worked, long-live-the-king from our hearts, but it continues with the slow and difficult process of sanctification, of rooting out sin and false worship and idols from our lives. What God was doing here was continuing the work of salvation for His people, recommitting them to Himself so that they would continue to serve Him, so that His people would again flourish under Him, their King, and so that the heir of David could again sit on the throne and reign, and so that ultimately the promise of the true Messiah and eternal salvation would not be stifled, but rather carried out. And that brings us then to the annotation. This then is the annotation, the highlighted section of the passage 
which is the fact that this is all the work of God. Notice that God is not mentioned anywhere in this narrative as actually doing any of this. It doesn't say God sent someone to do this, or God did that, or God made this salvation possible. But it was most certainly God who was doing everything to bring about the salvation of his people. He was being faithful to his promise of the Messiah. He was freeing his people from that cruel, illegitimate ruler. He was purging the idols from the land, and he was restoring his people to himself. In this time of Advent, as we await the greatest act of God yet, when He will send His Son to finally judge the living and the dead and to restore all things to His heavenly Father, let us continue to expect that God will continue to act. That all of this, all of our lives, will ultimately be about what God is doing to bring about His purposes. Because brothers and sisters, when we understand that, when we understand that it is ultimately God who is bringing about His purposes, then we will never be disappointed. God's purposes are never thwarted. It says in verses 19 and 20, the king then took his place on the holy throne and all the people of the land rejoiced. The city was quiet because Athaliah had been slain with the sword at the palace. As God does His work, as He continues to bring us forward in His salvation, as He leads us on to the time when the Gospel will spread around the whole earth, when His purposes will be complete and His Son will return, there is that glorious twofold outcome. The one proclaimed by the angels to the shepherds on the eve of Christ's first coming. When the true King came, true king came into this world, to defeat the power of darkness. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom His favor rests. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.